0: The following audio is from Emmaus KC. More information about Emmaus KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. If you're a guest, I just want to let you know it's great to have you here. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. um, And it's our joy that you're here. Our our prayer for you today is that from the time you come to the time you leave, you would love Jesus more. And when you walk out of here today, you would truly love Jesus more than you did when you walked in here today. Um, and we, we believe that that's possible to happen because of the work of the Holy Spirit within your life as we sing and as we preach the word. And so we just pray that you would see something in Jesus and something in us that makes you go, I love Jesus more today than I did before. And for our covenant members, we love you guys. It's a joy to do life with you. We started journeying through this book four weeks ago now. And the, the central theme of Philippians, what we're saying is, is this, is that it's about partnership in the gospel. Paul is sitting in prison in Rome and he's riding back to this church that he started 10 years prior. It's a church that he went into and started from God's calling there. Paul was trying to go other places and God said, no, don't go there. No, you can't go there and said, come here. And he leads them, leads Paul to Philippi and Paul goes into Philippi and immediately begins seeing people trust and hope in Jesus. We've got this woman named Lydia who's a seller of fine fabrics, a wealthy lady, and she becomes a believer. She was already leading a women's prayer meeting, but she didn't know about Jesus. And so Paul tells her about Jesus in this, the, this story, the gospel, or excuse me, the, the letter tells us that God opened up her heart to believe the truth of Jesus. And so she believed. You've got Paul um, casting out the demon of this girl because he's frustrated that she keeps walking around mocking them. And when he casts out the demon, the owners of this girl who are making money off of her power from this demon possession arrest Paul and he's beaten, stripped naked, beaten, and imprisoned. And Paul and his companions in prison sing and praise and worship God. And all the jailers and all the prisoners begin to listen and hear the gospel. And God sends an earthquake, the jail opens up, they're freed to run, but they stay. The jailer is so convicted and taken back by what he's heard and what he's seen and what he now witnesses with the fact that they're still there that that he actually says, tell me how to be saved. Tell me what it means to trust in this Jesus. And so they do. And then they tell his whole household. And the jailer and his entire household become followers of Jesus and are baptized. And the church in Philippi is started out of this. Very different people all hearing about this Jesus who was worth Paul's very life. So Paul ends up leaving Philippi. Ten years later, he's sitting in prison again. This is is what Paul does. He shares Jesus. He gets beat and imprisoned. And the moment he's out, he shares Jesus. He gets beaten and imprisoned. And in between there, he works in some time for shipwrecks and snake bites and that kind of thing. That's what he does. He's in prison in Rome for sharing the gospel, for telling people about salvation and Jesus. And he writes back to the church of Philippi. He writes back to them answering questions that they have. He writes back to them telling them how he is doing. He writes back to them exhorting them and encouraging them in their partnership in the gospel. And in fact, that's how he begins the letter. He says, I want to thank you because every time I remember you, my heart is filled with joy because of your partnership with me in the gospel from the first day till now. You have always been a church, always been a people who partnered and worked and helped in spreading the gospel and declaring the gospel. And so his heart's overfilled with joy for this. And then he tells them, hey, I want to tell you how I am. You've asked. Let me share with you how I am. I am really good. But Paul, you're in prison. You're waiting trial by the emperor where most likely you will be executed. And Paul goes, yeah, I'm really good. Because for Paul, his status of life was so entwined with the advancement of the gospel that as long as the gospel is going forth, Paul's okay. As long as the gospel is going forth, as long as the message of Jesus is going forth, Paul's good. So it didn't matter what circumstances were surrounding him, what poverty, what suffering, what heartache, what future laid ahead that he did not know how bad it would get or how much better it would get, Paul... Was okay if the gospel was going forth. But Paul, there's people out here who are saying bad stuff about you. There's people out here who are preaching Jesus, but they're also slandering your name, and they're ridiculing you, and they're stealing your support, and they're, they're taking your church members, in, and you're losing your audience out here. People are thinking less of you because you're in there. And Paul says, okay, doesn't matter, the gospel's going forth. It's going forth in prison. The whole guard, 9,000 soldiers have heard. By the way, everyone else has heard. And because of my imprisonment, the church in Rome is being emboldened to share their faith courageously. And some of those people are sharing. And yes, some of them are slandering me and some of them are hurting me. And some of them are, are erasing my name and my significance might be dwindling. And none of that matters because the gospel is going forth. In essence, Paul's status of himself is this. Doesn't matter what happens to me, what you do to me, how bad it gets, how insignificant I am, how much you shame me, what I lose. None of it matters as long as Jesus is made known. So if it takes the shaming of me, if it takes my insignificance, if it takes my imprisonment, my beatings, my death to make Jesus known, that's what we want to happen. And Paul takes it further this week takes it further this week what i believe he's wanting us to see between last week and this week is this that we should consider jesus as a better treasure than anything else that we could pursue or possess and we would see our lives as having no greater purpose than to advance the gospel of jesus and that we would rejoice no matter what trial or suffering we face as long as the gospel is advanced He's going to continue to unpack that for us in today's passage, verses 18 through 30. Let me read it for us, and then we're going to come back and break it apart. Yes, and I will rejoice. so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. but also should suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul, how are you in prison? I'm great, the gospel's going forth. But Paul, people are saying bad things about you. It's wonderful, the gospel's going forth. In these things, I rejoice. And what's more, I continue to rejoice even more so in this. And Paul is going to unpack for us what causes even more joy than the gospel going forth because of his imprisonment. And what causes even more joy than his name being shamed for the advancement of the gospel. What causes even more joy than that is this. Paul has this confident belief that he's going to be victorious. I want us to look at it. Paul is calling us and he is saying for himself that what he is pursuing and what we should pursue is faithfulness. He says this in verse 18, the end of 18 and 19. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, some of your translations may say salvation for my deliverance or my salvation. It's interesting what this could mean. There's three broadly accepted ideas here. First, that it means his physical deliverance, that he's about to go on trial with the ibrahim and he will be physically acquitted on trial, set free from prison and be able to come back to them. Some would believe that that's what he means. I don't think that's what he means. I don't think that's what he means for two, two broad reasons, several reasons that we don't have time to go into, but two very broad reasons would be this. One, I don't think it fits with the context of what he is writing because Paul seems in many other places to have no confidence he's getting out. It appears that he's very unsure of what the outcome of his situation is going to be. He's about to see that. You're about to see that at the end of verse 20, whether in life or in death, I don't know which one's going to happen, but whichever one happens, this is what I have hope in. I also just don't think it fits with Paul's message in any of his letters to find a hope and value and expectation in your earthly freedom. Paul seems to be one that doesn't embrace anything of earthly freedoms, but everything of a spiritual godly freedom. So I don't think that that's what it is. Others believe this is an eschatological deliverance or salvation. But what Paul is thinking about is that the end times, on the day of judgment, he'll be vindicated. At the end of all things, at the day of judgment, when all is said and done, whether he has been set free from the emperor or he's been killed by the emperor, at the end of all times, at the judgment before God, God will look and go, you were innocent. You were vindicated. That Paul's name would not be shamed that day. I don't believe that this is what it's talking about either. Though, I do believe that what it's talking about ultimately will lead to this. I believe the third option is correct. And the third option is this, that what Paul's actually talking about is a deliverance or salvation, meaning a victory in faithfulness in his trial and in his suffering. For Paul, deliverance or salvation is this militaristic idea of receiving victory And that victory being his faithfulness in the midst of the trial that's coming to him so that the gospel would be proclaimed, so that the gospel would go forth. The theme of the entire letter, how we're looking at this entire thing, is this partnership in the gospel. He's talking about we must be proclaimers of the gospel, bold with the gospel. And in this light, I believe for Paul, victory, deliverance, salvation, is that in the midst of his trial and in the midst of his um, sufferings, the gospel goes forth. And for Paul, the gospel goes forth only in his faithfulness in this trial. If he recants, if he turns his back, if he cowards down, if he's silenced before the emperor to protect himself, the gospel ceases to go forth from that. So for Paul, victory, deliverance, salvation is faithfulness in his trial, whether in life or in death. Are you following that? Now I said I believe that ultimately leads to the other because I believe Paul's theology would show us that we are to remain faithful to the end and thus doing, proving our salvation so that we will be vindicated by the Lord. So that at the day of judgment, the Lord looks at us and goes, you are faithful. And now that we earned our salvation, but our faithfulness has proven our salvation, has proven our being bought by Christ. So Paul's theme here, what Paul is holding to is this deliverance or this salvation, this victory in his trial. So let's read it. Verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Do you see the theme through there? What he's concerned about is that he would lose courage, that he would not be found faithful, that he would not be bold with the gospel. Therefore, at the end times, he would be found, and on this trial, he would be found shameful. So what he's holding to is what he's praying for, what he's hoping in is that he will be faithful. that He'll preach and proclaim the gospel in the midst of his trial, that the gospel would go forth so that he will not be found ashamed. That's his hope. That's his eager expectation. His ambition, his hope, his expectation, what he's asking prayer for, what he is most concerned about in this moment in prison as he's awaiting trial is not his release. It's not a painless death. What he is most concerned about is whether or not the gospel will be advanced through his faithfulness. What a different type of prayer that is than most of ours in trials and sufferings. God, would you relieve my suffering? Would you take away my pain? Would you remove this trial? Not that those are wrong prayers, but I believe that Paul's prayer trumps those, that it surpasses those in a faithfulness in God and a commitment to the gospel, that God weathered, In life, you free me from the trials. Or in death, you cause me to end, be ended in the trials. May the gospel go forth and may I be faithful. That's his prayer. That's his hope. That's his expectation. I want us to also see Paul's theology of the spirit and of prayer here. Paul's demonstrating for us two significant things that we must grasp. Number one, dependence upon the Spirit. And number two, importance of the prayers of the church. Dependence upon the Spirit and importance of the prayers of the church. I believe the Spirit that he's referring to here is the Holy Spirit, which has been supplied to him. We saw this last week. That he's walking in the power of and he's praying, he's asking for their prayers so that he will remain faithful. And for Paul, there's this dependence upon the Spirit. Because he says this, For I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I will turn, this will turn out for my deliverance. For Paul, his understanding of his faithfulness in the midst of this trial and suffering is dependent upon the Spirit's help. Some translations use the word supply. The Spirit has been supplied to Paul and will help Paul in this. He's not leaning on his own understanding or his own ability or his own strength to be faithful in the trial, but he's trusting that the Spirit will give him the strength. If we're going to be people that face trials and sufferings, we have to be the people who are dependent upon the Spirit, not upon our own abilities. Who are trusting and hoping in the Spirit and the power of Christ. give us victory to give us deliverance to give us salvation in our trials and for paul this goes even a step further because for him there is this correlation between the supply and the help of the spirit and the prayers of the church so paul's eager hope and expectation is that the spirit will help him be faithful through the prayers of the church That somehow those two things work together. As the church prays for his faithfulness, the spirit who has already been supplied to him helps him be faithful. So Paul's going, I'm confident I will be faithful because you're praying for me and the spirit will help me. Those two things go hand in hand for him. We've got to be a church who's praying for each other's faithfulness and who is dependent upon each other's prayers for our faithfulness. And we wouldn't be prayerless Christians. We wouldn't be prideful and stubborn and self-sustaining, but that we would be humbly desperate for the help of the Spirit and the prayers of each other. It amazes me how many times I, and how many times we, walk through our trials and our difficulties and our sufferings helpless and silent, only to drown and then to go, No one help me. As a pastor, you hear this all the time. No one walked through this with me. No one came alongside me. No one supported me. Did you tell anyone of your trial? No. That we would be people who go, this is my trial. This is my suffering. This is my difficulty. I need the help of the Spirit and I need your prayers. Would you walk with me in this? War with me in this. Fight with me in prayer For my faithfulness, I do not want to be shamed in this. Would we become desperate on each other? We see then as he goes forward into verse 21. Verse 19, for I know through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We want to be a people. We believe that Paul is a person and that we want to be people who are pursuing faithfulness. We also want to be people who are treasuring Jesus. Who are treasuring Jesus. This is one of those dangerous verses for us because it's one of those really well-known verses. If you have church background at all, and some of us who don't have church background have probably heard this verse. This verse. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And it becomes really easy to hear that and not to really soak it in. These are bold claims by Paul. If I live, my entire life is to be spent on Jesus. Every ounce of it. And if I die, praise God, because I get Jesus. Every ounce of him. Those are Paul's hopes. That's what he's longing for. That's why he can say, in my trial, my hope and my expectation is that I would be faithful so that I will not be ashamed. Because as long as I'm living, my life is to be spent on the declaration of the gospel because what I want is Jesus. He is what I treasure the most. Therefore, I believe he's truly what you should treasure the most. So my life will be spent on Jesus. And the day that Jesus decides for my life to end, I get Jesus. For Paul, it's a win-win. Jesus in life and Jesus in death. Perhaps, though, this isn't true of us. Perhaps you or I can't honestly say for me to live is Christ. That in my life. The very purpose of my existence. The days that I go through. From the time I wake. Till the time I fall asleep. And everything in between. Every position I take. Every relationship I build. Every place that I live. Every dollar that I spend. Is for the purpose of Christ. Christ. For his sake, for the gospel to go forth. Perhaps it's not true of us because perhaps you and I don't actually see Christ as our treasure. Because let's just be honest what our treasure is that we chase, that we pursue. You pursue what you adore. You pursue what you want. You pursue what you long for. You make sacrifices for that. And so do our lives show in our day in and day out living that Christ is our treasure? Or are our hearts filled with other coin? Perhaps we don't truly believe this because we have yet to see that the treasures that we are embracing will leave us empty and broken and wanting. Perhaps we've not found the place where the treasure we've been chasing has left us lying face down with nothing. Perhaps we don't see Christ as our treasure because the treasures that we are chasing aren't necessarily inherently evil. Perhaps you're not chasing inherently evil things. You might even be chasing good treasures, wholesome things, moral things, good things, helpful things, caring things, loving, generous things. You might even be pursuing the gospel itself, the advance of the gospel itself. Your treasure might even be the church. It might happen to be that good of a treasure. But if it's not Jesus, it's wanting. Jesus is the treasure. He's what we get and what we're pursuing and what we're sharing. He's all that we have. Jesus is the treasure. And so when we begin to see Christ when we begin to see Jesus as the most valuable thing that we have it begins to shape our lives into a life like Paul's which let's just be honest sounds ridiculous doesn't it I mean to someone who doesn't treasure Jesus Paul's response here is absolutely absurd like I would be recommending him for counseling Paul I think you're you're out of sync here man I think, I think there's something messed up in your mind. Your priorities seem wrong. Shouldn't you be concerned about getting out or shouldn't you be concerned about your reputation? You've spent your whole life building this. But let's just think a moment about the man who's writing this. Paul was a man who had spent his entire life pursuing treasures of the world. And even moral and good ones at that. Paul was not a man who spent his entire life chasing every sinful desire he could find. He wasn't a man pursuing drunkenness and orgies. He wasn't a man pursuing just worldly gain. He was a man pursuing God, but in all the wrong ways. He didn't know Jesus. Jesus wasn't his treasure. Jesus wasn't his pursuit. And he gave his life to things other than Jesus. And so he rose quickly with power and position and prestige among the religiously good people. And his mission was to snuff out and to silence all of those who held to the gospel, which he's now in prison for declaring. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He called himself an insolent opponent, unable to be turned or changed. He imprisoned, tortured, and killed those who held the same gospel that he's now in prison for holding to. And it didn't just happen to him, it didn't just fall in his lap. It wasn't like he was just there one day and and persecution and imprisonment and killings of Christians like fell in his lap, and he's like, Well, I'm here, I might as well participate. It says he actually went and sought permission from the ruling authorities to hunt down and kill those who followed Christ. Proactively pursuing them. Insolent. I can't be changed. Until that day, he was on that horse. On his way to arrest and torture and kill followers of Jesus. And Jesus shows up to him himself. And in a great light and a voice from heaven calls out to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul struck blind. They carry him to a house and they put him in this house and lay him on a bed and the spirit of God shows up to a follower of Jesus and says, I want you to go down to Straight Street and I want you to tell Saul of Tarsus about me. But, but God, he kills people like me. I know. And I will show him how much he must suffer for me. God's plan for Paul was that Paul would suffer for God. Now that sits heavy with some of us, doesn't it? Because some of you in this room have suffered or are suffering and you're going, Hold up. You mean to tell me that it might not just be that God allowed this, but that God actually planned my suffering? We don't have time this morning for a whole theology of suffering, but yes. God loves you, believer. He loves you more than you love yourself. And he knows what will fill your heart with immense and eternal joy more than you know yourself. And he loves himself. Which is a good thing. So sometimes God even causes suffering in our lives. So that he would be made known to others. Starting with you. Because he knows the greatest joy you will ever know is to know and treasure him above all else. And sometimes it takes great suffering for all the treasures that we've been chasing to crumble before us. And us be left with nothing but the treasure that will fully satisfy us. Paul's treasures had crumbled before him. Christ is what he had left. So he says, whether I die or whether I live, Jesus. If I live, my life is to be spent on Jesus. And if I die, I get to see Jesus. Can I ask you a really morbid question? Do you ever look forward to death? Are you ever just sitting there going, can't wait till I die? Right, not in the, let's see what we can do to make that happen way, but in the, when that day comes, it's going to be good. Or for you is death the greatest fear? Paul, later in this book, says that he counts everything as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. What he knows is the day he dies, he will know Jesus to a degree he's never known him before. So he actually looks forward to death. We ask you this, church what do you refuse to lose in order to live for Jesus? What is it in your life that you possess right now that if required to be removed from you in order to have a life that is spent and lived on Jesus, you would not want to give up? Is it your comfort? Is it your status? Is it your health or your reputation or your significance or a relationship? That thing flowing through your mind is your treasure. And what is there in your life, church, that you do not want to lose in order to gain Christ in death? When you think about the day that you will die and the joy of receiving Christ, what is there in your life that would make you go, I don't ever want to die? I don't want to leave this. That can't be as good as this. Is it your spouse? Your children? The idea of a spouse or children? What is it for you? That is your treasure. For Paul, he says, whatever I have to give up to get Jesus in death, I'll take it. And whatever I have to give up to get Jesus in life, I'll take him. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. So we must ask ourselves often and daily, church, what am I treasuring more than Jesus? What am I treasuring more than him? Paul goes on in verses twenty-two through, through 26. Feels like we're never going to get through this text, doesn't it? It's probably true. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. We see that we should be people who are pursuing faithfulness, people who are treasuring Jesus. We should also be people who are considering the church. So how did you get that? Because that's what Paul does. Paul is struck with this great dilemma. And Paul's dilemma is not, do I die or do I live? That is out of his hand. It's out of his control. He's already said, whichever one that happens, great. Paul's great dilemma is this it's an eternal question huh if I had the choice to die or to live if this was in my power which one would I choose right if you're sitting in prison long enough awaiting a possible execution this type of question could come hmm so they might kill me I might actually like that more which one would I choose if I had the power to choose And so Paul begins to reason with himself. And he says, verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Right? I'm going to pursue the advancement of the gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to evangelize people. I'm going to share Jesus with people. That's what my life will be spent on. If I get to live, it'll be fruitful. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. And if there's any of us in the room, we'd most likely be going, choose life. Who wants to be executed? Right? You're not talking about passing away gently in your sleep. You're talking about being slaughtered by Roman soldiers and your life being over and losing your family and your friends and all that you know and have held to is gone. Your ministry is over. Choose life. He's like, I can't decide. He says this. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Right? Not just, man, I I can't decide. You know, I hear Jesus is really good. There's streets of gold and there's stuff like that there. Crystal Sea. I might get that. That could be all I heard. I get a mansion when I get there. Heaven might be nice. But I'm just not sure. No, Paul, Paul goes, okay, I, I, I'm hard pressed. But to be honest, you know what I really would like to do? I'd like to die. That's what I want. Just, just to die. Because for me to die doesn't mean I get gold streets. And it doesn't mean I get crystal seas. And it doesn't mean I get mansions. It means I get Jesus. So, So if you want to press in on me. And if you're, if you're holding a sword to my neck and telling me I have to choose to live or die, because that's going to happen, I'm, I'm going to choose to die. Kill me. Because <laughs> I want Jesus more than I want anything that's here. My choice is always death over life, because death means Jesus. How twisted is that from our thoughts? But how eternal is that in its values? Jesus truly is his treasure. So he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to bar and be with Christ for that is far better. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus. Okay, so I'm trying to decide if I live or if I die. I'm not sure which to choose. Death. Because if I die, I get Jesus. That is far better for me. The best option for me is to die because I get Jesus. (coughs) But, you know, as I continue to think about it, the best option for you is for me to live. Because if I live, I can encourage you. I can push you to glory in Jesus. If I continue to live, I get to keep ministering to you. So the better thing for you is for me to live, though the better thing for me is for me to die. So here's what Paul says. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that you may have ample cause to, glorify, to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you. Paul goes, there's a decision that's better for me. And there's a decision that's better for you. If I had to choose, i choose the decision that's better for you. Is that convicting to us? That Paul's choice would not be the one that's better for him, even to the extent that he would get Jesus face-to-face. All right, we're not talking about, do I get a steak dinner or a PB&J? Well, a steak would be better for me, but a PB&J would be better on your bank book so i'm choosing PB&J. We're not talking that. We're talking he gets Jesus face to face. That type of better for him. But what he chooses is what's better for the church. Church, do you think that corporately in your decisions? When you're deciding what job to take, where to move to, what house to buy or to sell, what apartment to rent, what place of employment, what relationships to pursue or not pursue, how to use your home, how to spend your money, are you asking yourself the question, what's better For the church. What's better for the church? What's better for my fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus? What's better for others, not what's better for myself? Paul would tell us to consider the church. D.A. Carson says, what is striking about Paul's evaluation of this decision is how deeply it is tied to the well-being of other believers rather than to his own. Paul's deepest hopes for his own immediate future turn neither on the bliss of immediately gaining heaven's portals nor on returning to a fulfilling ministry and escaping the pangs of death, but on what is best for his converts, his church. How often do we raise as a first principle what is best for the church? Paul goes on. We're almost done. We've seen that we should pursue faithfulness. We should treasure Jesus and we should consider the church. And then he's going to tell us that we should live worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you and that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a, dear, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul comes to them in this part of his letter after saying, I've chosen to treasure Jesus and I'm choosing to consider you as the church. I would choose to live because it'd be better for you He's still unsure of what is going to happen. But he gives them this imperative. He gives them this command, this calling. He goes, listen, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Spend your life on one thing, Christ. Give yourself to one thing, Christ. And he tells us what that looks like. He says... Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? These are militaristic terms. Remember, he's writing to a colony of veterans, of Roman soldier Veterans. And he's using imagery that they would understand and grasp. And he says, stand firm. right? Don't budge. Don't give. As the attack is coming at you, don't give ground. Stand firm. And then he says, in one spirit. Right now, I believe what he's referring to here is, is the Holy Spirit. There's... Different beliefs here. If you have the ESV, it actually lowercases spirit, which would mean that they don't interpret it that way. Some translations do. I believe in light of the rest that he has been talking about thus far in this argument, he's telling us in the spirit stand firm with his strength, stand firm together with one mind, right? Now unified in your psyche, working and synced together. This idea of a military unit that is fighting and flowing and moving in sync together for victory. You don't have some soldier running off on his own over here and trying to do his thing. You don't have people turning around and facing the other way. No one's running. One synced unit fighting together, standing firm together in the power of the Spirit. So that when the attacks of the enemy, when the oppressors come against you, you have courage. You stand strong, striving, fighting side by side for faith in the gospel. For Paul, the point of unity in the spirit and in the mind is faithfulness in the gospel. He would say to us, church, you have differences. You have hurts, you have feelings, you have brokenness. There's things between you. Put it all aside and fight in unity for the gospel. That's what matters. That's what matters. And he says, very interestingly here, this, verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, And that from God. You, church, working in sync, standing firm, fighting side by side as one unit for the sake of the gospel is a clear sign of destruction and salvation. There's two ways to interpret this. Some translations interpret it as their destruction, those who are coming against them, those who are opposing them, those who are persecuting them. And some interpret it as our destruction. Our destruction as the church. Those who take the latter would say that it is this idea that when we stand firm and oppose the enemy, when we stand firm in the gospel, when we proclaim Jesus, no matter what persecution and trials come our way, it is a clear sign we will be destroyed. But it's a clear sign that we will be victorious. You will face the earthly destruction. You will lose the earthly battle. You may be killed. You may be martyred. You may lose much. But remember Paul's definition of victory you will be faithful and not found ashamed. You'll be faithful. May we work as one as a church. With one goal, with one ambition, with one mission, and that is that the Northland, Kansas City, Northeast Italy, where we're partnered, would know the gospel, would see the gospel, would hear the gospel, would believe the gospel, that the world would see and know and believe that salvation comes in Jesus, or that Jesus, God's Son, came to earth, shed his blood and broke his body on the cross taking God's wrath upon himself that was due to you and I so that you and I might receive God's kindness that was due to him. He paid your penalty for sin so that you might receive his reward for perfection. That's the gospel. He calls us be one to be unified in declaring and sharing that gospel and if we do so faithfully we will be victorious we will not be ashamed after all this whole thing we're doing here the church is about a partnership in the gospel this is who we are and what we do. We've been saved by Jesus, and we go together to declare Jesus. It's all we have. That's all we're called to do. May we be people who are faithful to do it, whether in life or in death. Let us pursue faithfulness, treasuring Jesus and considering each other so that our lives may be worthy of the gospel so that Jesus may be known. Let me pray for us, church. Jesus, would you convict the hearts of your children in this room? Those in this room who know you, who have trusted in you, who have hoped in you, would you convict our hearts today where it is not our eager hope and expectation to be faithful to you? Would you convict us where there are places that we are not treasuring you above all else? Would you convict us of places where we are not considering the church above ourselves? Would you convict us of places where we're not living in a manner worthy of the gospel, where we're not living in unity with each other so that the gospel goes forth known? May our hearts be convicted so that our hopes and our treasures and our dreams and our pursuits will change but Jesus even in our conviction as your children may we still know that we're forgiven and loved and may your eternal and unconditional acceptance of us as your children be what propels us to treasure you more And Jesus, for those in the room who do not know you, who have not trusted in you, may today they trust in you. May their pursuits of everything that they've treasured in this life fail them miserably until they're left with no option but Jesus, who will never fail. May they quit trying of their own accord be good or to be pleasing to you may they quit seeking apathy but may they pursue jesus knowing that those who do will find him may you save today thank you for listening to audio from amaze casey located in kansas city for more information about amaze casey please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.